How many know fear doesn't stand a chance when Jesus is in the house? It only stands a chance if we let it, right? If we give it room, it'll take up the space. But if you chase it out with faith, it has to stay out by faith. That doesn't mean you can't and you don't have to keep fighting the battles. You have to keep fighting the good fight of faith. Trusting in Jesus. But Jesus said 365 times in the Bible, Fear not, for I'm with you. Somebody said, and you've heard me say this, but I think it's pretty amazing. Somebody said there's a 366th time for leaf year even in there. I'm just saying God's got it covered. Amen? Well, if you're here this morning, how many of you have ever been camping? Any campers in the house? Raise your hand. Lots of us have been camping. When I was a kid, that was the thing to do, especially on vacations. We took vacations. My family went camping all the time. When I was a kid, we had this cool five-man tent. We had five people in our family. Uh, We had enough room for everybody. It was awesome. But every summer, my mom and dad would usually plan a special camping vacation. And that vacation ran like clockwork. I mean, they had every detail planned out. They had our traveling itinerary, what roads we were going to take to get to the campground, when we were going to stop for bathroom breaks, unless you had a real emergency, where we were going to stop to eat, what we were going to eat, down to what we were going to wear. Everything was planned out. So when we got to the campground, you know, we start looking for the perfect spot to set up our tent. Well, we found this beautiful spot underneath these beautiful oak trees, this nice grassy spot, perfect picturesque spot to put a tent. So all the family chips in. We know our parts. We all help put up the tent. Uh, We get it set up. We build us a campfire. And with all of my mom and dad's careful planning, they didn't plan on one thing, water. Water. And I'm not talking it comes out of the faucet. That night it came a torrential downpour. We woke up soaking wet with water pouring in our tent. With all of my parents' careful planning, we didn't realize that where we set our tent up in that perfect picturesque spot, was actually a waterway. It was actually a waterway that drained the whole campground. So that night when that downpour came, all the water from the whole campground came right to where we were at. It almost washed away our tent. My whole point to that story is sometimes you can plan and you can plan and you can plan, but sometimes your plans blow up in your face. Sometimes things don't go according to your plans, and I'm going to talk about those kind of plans today. And if you're our guest and you haven't been here for the last four weeks, we've been in a series on the book of Joshua. Catch you up to speed. Last week we talked about how God miraculously conquered the city of Jericho for his people by giving his people this kind of crazy battle plan. Uh, He gave them the battle plan with the craziest marching band in history. Amen. For seven days he told his people to march around the fortified walled cities of Jericho Uh, blowing their horns and shouting, and the walls came down. Pretty miraculous. But before the walls came down, God had carefully instructed them. We didn't get into this last week, but we will this week. He had carefully instructed them on what to do with the treasures and the bounty of the defeated city of Jericho. Listen to what it says in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. It says, "...the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord." But keep away from the devoted things. Now let me stop here. This isn't just a suggestion. This is a command by Almighty God. Keep away from the devoted things. And God says so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, God says, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. 
All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So up to this point in this series and through the book of Joshua, we have seen where they have had victory after victory after victory, how God has defeated great enemies for the people of, uh, for the Israelites, his people. God's done some amazing things, so I want to jump to chapter 7 and see what happens next. Look what it says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. He took some of the devoted things that God had told him not to take from the city of Jericho. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. How would you like to be that guy, Achan? That you're the cause of God being mad at everybody. I don't think I'd want to be in Achan's shoes. Really, the truth is, other than Rahab and her family, everything that lived in Jericho was to be wiped out. It was actually to be put to death. And every valuable thing of that city was to be put into the treasury of the Lord after they defeated Jericho. Then, if you remember, the city was to be burned. So God's giving his people some pretty easy, I would say, under... Uh, easy to understand instructions. They're not to keep anything for themselves. And I believe God's pretty clear in his rule, at least for this battle, that all of the bounty belongs to him. Usually in normal battle situations, the spoils actually belong to the soldiers. It was like part of their pay. It was like their reward for victory. But not this time. And if you remember from last week, not this time because the, the uh, armies of Israel did not defeat Jericho. God defeated Jericho. So he wants the bounty to belong to him. And to make them understand this, he says, when you get in there, anything of value, the treasures, you just put them in my treasury. He also told them that if you don't follow this law, you break it, the entire nation of Israel is going to suffer. Look what it says in verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Let me stop right there because Ai is the next city that God is sending them to to defeat. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So they send in spies to kind of check out the lay of the land, get kind of their own battle plan together, and the spies come by, come back, and their report is, oh, this is just a tiny podunk farming community. We don't need to send all of our army in to defeat AI. Let's just send a few men. We can take care of this business and be back by dinner time. Easy peasy. So they put a plan together, and it looked good. And I would imagine just knowing the battle they just came from where they defeated Jericho, they've got a little bit of confidence. They're probably saying, wow, this is nothing. We can take this. We're God's people. Everything is going to be easy. Well, not so much. Look at verse 4. So about 3,000 of them went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people, and this time it's God's people, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So not only is their army embarrassed, they're chased out, and not only that, they kill 36 of their soldiers. So their hearts are melting in fear like they were water. I mean, when you know where they came from and what just happened with Jericho, this is discouraging. 
Everything changed in that moment because I believe all of a sudden it was a wake-up call for the Israelites to say, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong here. We are definitely beatable. And by the way, this is one of the only times, this is the only time that in the book of Joshua it talks about uh, God's army being defeated. And it's the only time that it talks about uh, them losing men in the battle. So that's a big deal. I said all that to say, have you ever been in a situation where you felt really confident that you had it all together, everything was under control, and all of a sudden you looked up and it's out of control? All of a sudden you looked up and everything uh, is falling apart, and you're asking yourself, why and how did I end up here? Why and how did I end up here? I would say that is definitely a question that the Israelites are asking themselves. How can we just come from that and end up here? Well, maybe looking at this story can help us understand how this happens. I'm going to bring out a few points that I believe that God's trying to bring out in this story. The first one is pretty obvious. Things happen because a lot of times, lack of prayer. Lack of prayer. Anytime you have a lack of prayer in your life, I'm just going to say you're going to have some trouble in your life. Not that you don't normally have trouble in your life, but you're going to have some real trouble. There's going to be some consequences for a lack of prayer. Do you remember last week when Joshua got the battle plan from God to go into Jericho, do you remember the first thing he did? He fell on his face before God, and he worshiped God. He consulted God. He prayed to God. He spent time in God's presence, and God gave him the exact battle plan, as ridiculous as it seemed to be. God laid it out play by play how they could defeat uh, Jericho, and they did. But get this, in this battle, just a short time later, just a short time later, Joshua goes into battle and doesn't even consult the Lord. Doesn't even ask him what he's supposed to do next. And I think that's human nature. I think sometimes when we come off of these big victories in our lives, sometimes we just think all of a sudden then it's going to be automatic. All of a sudden we think, well, God's going to start doing things my way, how I want them done. And gosh, I had a big part to play in that last battle, so I know I can almost handle this one. I mean, we get thinking all these things, or we do what I talked about last week. We'll go by the old recipes or the old methods of how we won a victory uh, in the last battle, and we think it's going to work again. And it doesn't always work and usually doesn't work that way. And the truth is, if we just rely on tradition, guess what? We're just going to be religious. And God's not about religion. He's about relationship. So the only way we're going to win battles is to stay in constant and total dependence upon God and that really comes by staying in prayer, staying in communication with God. So if you're not praying on a daily basis, you're missing out on a lot of instructions that God has for whatever battles that you might face in your life. But the very next battle against Ai, Joshua didn't do that, like I said. He relied on his army, not upon God. He relied on his own strength of his army. Brings me to point number two. Joshua and his army got prideful. They got prideful. I think they had forgotten that it was not their troops that won the war, won the battle. It was God that stepped in and delivered Jericho into their hands. But I can't understand how they could have gotten a little bit prideful. God had provided for them in their battles to where they were defeating their enemies on such a level that everybody was shaking in their boots when they heard about Israel. Their hearts were melting in fear because they had seen what God had empowered their army to do, and their hearts were melting in fear. Kind of reminds me of my high school days when I played high school football. I definitely wasn't the biggest man on the team, that's for sure, but I was one of the fastest ones, faster ones. 
But I remember how uh, intimidating it was to see the opposing team coming down the field at you. It was pretty intimidating. And whenever I was a halfback, and any time I got to run the ball, it was pretty intimidating unless I knew I could run behind a certain guy. His name happened to be Joe Waymeyer. He's about 6'5", 6'6", 280, 290, strong as an ox, big as an ox. I mean, when he'd run down the field, he'd flick guys off and right and left just like they were gnats. I mean, no problem. He could open up a hole big enough to drive a semi-truck through for me. So as long as I was running behind Joe Waymire, and sometimes I literally grabbed a hold of his jersey, let's go, Joe, and we went through. <laughs> you know, the crowd would cheer. You get kind of caught up in that. The crowd would cheer like Cheryl does when I walk into a room every day. I mean, it's just <laughs> not so much. <laughs> but you get kind of... You get kind of caught up in the moment. I mean, I was confident, but I will tell you this. I had good enough to sense to know that my 145-pound high school frame was no match for any of the defenders unless I was running behind Joe Waymire. You might be saying, what are you trying to do, show off? No. What I'm trying to tell you is I think the Israelite army forgot that they were supposed to be running behind God, and they got ahead of God. They started doing things on their own strength, and you start doing things on your own strength without God, you're going to fail every time. You're going to get tackled every time. You're going to fall short every time. Listen to what James says in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift doesn't come from you, doesn't come from your own strength, your own abilities, your own efforts. Every good and perfect gift that we're given comes down from the Father above. Amen? That's where these gifts come from. He deserves the glory. He deserves the credit. So Joshua and the elders are like, man, how did we end up here? How did we end up here? We just defeated Jericho, this mighty fortified city. And Ai, this little podunk farming community, is beating up on us. So what do they do? They do what they should have done in the beginning. They go to God in prayer. They take it to God and they ask him. Look what it says in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do, O Lord, for your own great name? All of a sudden, Joshua goes instantly into the why me mode. Why mode? God, why? Why did you allow this to happen? God, why did you bring us across this river? Everything was better on the other side. God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow our enemies to beat up on us? God, it's not our fault. Why, God? And when I hear the big why, I wonder, I think the better question would be how. How do I deal with this? But I know in our human nature, when we fight battles that we seem to be losing, all of a sudden we go to God and we do the same thing Joshua did. Why? God, why did you allow this to happen? And then if things don't change pretty quickly, it's all your fault, God. You caused all of this. And I love how God responds to Joshua. Listen to what he says in verse 10 to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? I can just hear God say, why are you there complaining and whining and acting like my name's going to be at stake? Why are you doing all that? It's not my name at stake, it's yours. Look at verse 11. It says, Israel has sinned, God says. They have violated my covenant, 
which I commanded them to keep. And this, this is why God says you're being defeated. He says they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. He says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. That's a pretty important line. Unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Brings me to my third point. There's no such thing as hidden sin. There's no such thing as hidden sin. Joshua seems to be questioning God, and God comes back with his own reply. God's like me. I didn't do anything. Israel lied. Israel stole. Israel made mistakes. You know, God's not to blame here at all. He's saying, I'm right here, but unfortunately, you've got sin in your camp. He says, if you guys clean up your act, clean up your stuff, he says, I'll jump right back in there. But right now, don't point the finger at me because it's not me, it's you. Sometimes I think we as followers of Christ need to have the finger pointed at us and say, it's not me. God's saying, it's not me, it's you that has caused you to be in the situation you're in. But think about this. A holy God cannot and will not tolerate sin. It just won't work. A holy God will not and cannot tolerate sin. God designed the human heart to actually beat in unison with His. And if it beats in unison with Him, we're going to live that victorious life. We're going to be able to live that abundant life. We're going to be able to do the things that God has called us to do. We're going to have the peace that God has called us to have. But when our hearts beat out of unison from God, guess what? When we don't follow His laws... All of a sudden, we cut ourselves off from fellowship with God. By them disobeying God, they were cutting themselves off from fellowship with God, which brought the strength and power of God on the scene to defeat whatever enemy they had. Verse 13, go consecrate the people, Joshua says. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. Something big is going to happen the next day. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. He says in verse 14, In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done this outrageous thing in Israel. So think about God. God could have let Joshua know who the guilty party was. God knew. He knew it was Achan, but he didn't. I think this stands out to me because it shows the amazing grace of God. No matter what you've done, I believe he was giving Achan a chance to repent. I believe he was giving, giving Achan that had done this horrible thing, disobeyed God's direct orders, a chance to repent, come clean with God, what he had done against God, what he had done against God's people. I can't imagine him getting a good night's sleep the night before when he's just waiting for tomorrow to come, thinking he's counting the ticks on the clock that he's about to be found out. Or maybe he took the route that a lot of us take a lot of times. We start justifying things. We start making excuses, saying it was only a few bucks, not that big of a deal. I mean, at least I'm not like Rahab. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. I'm not that bad. And then he starts justifying, justifying, excusing, excusing, diminishing his sin. Have you ever had that kind of a conversation with God? We all have. Had that kind of a conversation where you really tell God, I'm really not that bad, at least compared to so-and-so, right? <laughs> I mean, I do a lot of good things, God. I've done a lot of great things. I don't go out and get hammered every Saturday night, amen? Uh, it's just a few bucks. The IRS won't even know about it. 
I mean, we justify things. I would say we go through this mode of justification and excuses, making excuses. It's kind of like if I do X, Y, and Z over here, then I can sin a little bit over here. Oh, if I do X and Y and Z and follow the uh, cues over here, then I can sin a little bit over here and everything's going to balance out. It's kind of like we think we can turn sin on and off and the consequences of sin on and off like a light switch. It doesn't work that way. Verse 16. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward, man by man, and Achan. There it is. They finally whittled it down. And Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. So one by one, person by person, they narrow it down to this one guy, Achan, and I was just thinking about this. Can you imagine all the other things that were probably confessed that day to uh, Joshua? People just confessing things that he wasn't after, things that he didn't know about, wasn't even wanting to know about. It's kind of like when you get called into the principal's office, and I know some of you have. And I know that uh, you knew you were guilty, but it's a long walk down to the principal's office, and usually you're pretty quiet because you want to get in there and you want to wait till the principal reveals his cards first, shows you his cards first. Because you know you're guilty, you just don't know how much he knows you're guilty, right? I mean, when he says, well, Mike, you skipped out third period yesterday, it's like, oh, you're right. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, it was third period yesterday when you really skipped out the whole day, amen? So I'm just saying, I wonder how many people came to Joshua and confessed things that they had done wrong. Hey, how about trying this at dinner time? How about standing up when your kids are at the dinner table with you and say, hey, I know what you've done. I'll give you... A Three minutes to tell your side of the story, and if you don't, you're in trouble. Guess what's going to happen? They're going to spill the beans. I mean, all you're going to have to do is take your notepad and start taking notes, amen? Just a thought. Some of you kids are saying, please don't do that. But in the story, they whittled it down tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, person by person, and they got all the way down to the guilty party, Achan. Look at verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. He's saying to Achan, this is your moment of truth. We know you're the guilty one. Tell us what you did. Verse 20, Achan replied, it is true. And keep in mind, before Achan confessed, it was only God and Achan that knew that he had stolen, that he had uh, disobeyed God. He says, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. He said, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, he said, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. When I think about Achan's story in the process, it kind of goes like this. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. The same sequence of events that you and I fall into when we fall into sin. It starts with a look. And all of a sudden, that look turns into a desire, which you could classify as coveting, which eventually ends up with the opportunity to take something, and we take it, and after that, we hide it, and we can't even enjoy it because we're so busy hiding it, thinking nobody will ever find out. Well, you may be able to hide it from people every day, all day long, but you're never going to hide it from Him. God knows what's going on in the depths of your heart, in the depths of your life. Um, Achan has to be the dumbest crook out there. I mean, think about it. 
Because it wasn't like he could have shown up at McDonald's wearing that beautiful Babylonian robe, right? It's like, where'd you get that? Oh, I've had this old thing forever. No, that's not going to work. And it's not like he could have gone up and paid for his Big Mac meal with a bar of gold, right? I mean, it's just not going to work that way. He knew he was going to be found out. And I'm sure he's thinking, well, everybody feels better with some new clothes on and a little money in your pocket doesn't hurt. But when it boils down to it, he went on, I want what I want, and I want it now mission. I want what I want, and I want it right now. And you know when we get into that mode, in the moment mode, where we just react in the moment, we stop rationalizing. We stop reasoning. We stop thinking things out on the level that we should, and we forget that there's consequences. We, we stop thinking about how this thing's going to play out. And then he realized he's got to hide it. He's got to hide it. You know, when you live in the now and react in the moment, there's still going to be consequences. Do you realize that? We forget all about that sometime. The Bible even says sin is fun for a season. I mean, if sin wasn't a little bit pleasurable and a little bit fun, we probably wouldn't do it. Amen? Think about it. I mean, that's just, no, that's it. Doesn't mean there's not consequences to it. Sin does that. It makes us think about the right now and not the after effects. And you know he's guilty because what's he do? He hides it in his tent. Look what it says in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkey, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. This is where a bad story goes from bad to worse. It gets a whole lot worse. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. After they corrected some things, all of a sudden it says, Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Some of you are sitting here thinking, How could a good, loving God do that? Did that really happen? Did, did they stone Achan and all the people of the village, all the people that were guilty, his family? Did they uh, kill his donkey, his oxen, uh, and all of his possessions? Yeah. How did that happen? I, I know how it happened. And I really know why it happens. It's kind of hard to understand sometimes. But I do know this. There were 36 widows, Israelite widows, and there were a lot of fatherless children because of the disobedience of this one man. There were consequences. You might say, well, they lived in the Old Testament. They were under the law. Yeah, they, they were. And there were consequences to sin. Guess what? We live in the New Testament day. In the time of grace, guess what? There's still consequences to sin. There's still consequences to sin, Old Testament, New Testament. And I believe Aiken's experience shows us that really, my main point is, there's no such thing as secret sin. There's no such thing as hidden sin. Uh, look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. That sounds like the Joshua we heard, uh, God we heard talking to Joshua uh, in the early chapters. Amen. He said, then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off 
all the plunder and the livestock for yourselves, set an ambush against the city. So they go back to Ai, this, this city where they had been chased out of, where 36 of their soldiers had been killed, but this time they go with a different battle plan. Guess what? They go with God's battle plan. And guess what happens? They win the battle. They win the battle, and they get it all. I'm thinking, poor Achan. If you just waited a few more days, you not only got a, a robe out of it and some money, you'd have got it all without the consequences. But it all boils down to our natural instinct. We want what we want, and we want it now. And it all boils down to causing us bigger problems than we ever had before. So you might be here today, and you might feel a little bit like Achan. You might be thinking, well, I've done some things. I've said some things. I struggle with some things. And you might be sitting beside some people thinking, well, if they really know who I was, what I've done, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Before you go too far, let me help you out this morning. Let me give you three tips to cleaning out your tent. We all need to clean out different areas in our tent, but I want to give you three main tips to cleaning out uh, your tent, the sin in your tent. Number one, uncover it. That is so vital. You need to uncover it because sin loves to stay hidden. Do you realize that? Sin itself loves to stay hidden. Because when sin is hidden and it's kept secret, guess what? It has control. It has complete control. So if you get in a sin situation and it gets that far, you need to go find somebody you trust and you respect and that loves you and you love them and come clean with them. Confess it. The Bible says there's healing in confession. There's forgiveness in confession. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces his sin finds mercy. I think that's the biggest reason we don't go to God and repent or go to somebody else and repent or confess is because we feel so ashamed. We feel so dirty. We feel so guilty. Let me tell you, get beyond that, uncover it, get it out in the open, open to start the healing process. Amen? Number two, get rid of it. We've we've confessed it, we've claimed it, we've admitted it, now it's time to get rid of it. And you've got to do more than just talk about it. You've got to take steps to actually get into the nitty-gritty of taking care of whatever's going on. Because if you don't get rid of it, guess what happens? It's coming back. And it's coming back to tempt you. My dad fought alcoholism for most of his life. And finally, whenever he gave up drinking, he had to clean his whole house out of alcohol. And he did except for one beer that he left in the very back of the refrigerator. And that beer stayed in my dad's refrigerator for years and years until one day when he opened that refrigerator door, it started calling his name. And he reached for it. That thing that he had thought he had defeated, he hadn't defeated because he didn't get rid of it. It was still right there. And I think of all the times he probably just opened that refrigerator door to get a sandwich, and that beer in the back of the refrigerator was calling his name was maybe whispering his name that got louder and louder and louder. The temptation got greater and greater and greater. The enemy was whispering to my dad. When God calls you to clean up your life and clean out some things out of your tent, you've got to get rid of it because if you leave any remains there, it's going to be calling you back. It's going to be tempting you all over again. Proverbs 26, verse 11 says, As a dog returns to its vomit, a fool repeats his folly. I don't know if you've got dogs, we've got dogs, and I know firsthand that they can roll in and they can eat some pretty nasty stuff, amen? And then what do we do? We let them kiss us, right? <laughs> but they eat some pretty nasty stuff, they roll in some pretty nasty stuff. 
And how many times have you looked at your dog when they do that and you think, you stupid thing, what are you doing? We've all done that. Have you ever put it into God's court? Ever wondered God might think that about us sometimes? Not that he's calling us stupid, even though most of the time we deserve to be called stupid. But he looks at us in our sin that we've gone back to time and time and time again. And he says, what in the world are you doing? I'm only saying this, we all have different situations going on in our lives. Maybe some of you need to clean out your liquor cabinet. Maybe some of you need to snip the internet cord. Maybe some of you need to break up with a bad relationship you got going. Maybe some of you need to let go of the grudge that you've been holding against somebody for maybe years. You need to get rid of it because if you keep it in the secret places of your heart, guess what? It's coming for you. It's coming back and it's going to tempt you and you're going to fall right back into it. Brings me to my point number three, destroy it. First of all, uncover it. You pull it out, now destroy it. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, don't start gouging your eyes out right now if you're in church and you've got sin in your life. God isn't saying that, but I believe he is saying it is so serious that I need to describe it like that. It is so serious when you've got hidden sin in your life. God's calling us to not just manage sin. Do you realize that? He just doesn't want us to manage a little bit of sin here, a little bit of sin there, keep it all in order, keep it under wraps. He wants us to get rid of it. He wants us to destroy it. And if we don't, it's just a matter of time, I promise you, before it comes back. And in a weak moment, guess what you're going to do and I'm going to do? We're going to compromise. We're going to say one more time won't hurt. And guess what's going to happen? You're back to square one. All the progress you had made, you go all the way back. What I'm saying is our sin and our disobedience not only affects our relationship with Almighty God, it affects our relationship with everyone around us in ways that we can't even imagine. So sin left unchecked, unconfessed, unrepented in our life is going to lead to defeat in your life. Do you realize that? It's going to lead to defeat in your life, and it's going to keep you from experiencing God's perfect plan for your life and from experiencing the victories that God has for your life. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, but I want to bring out another point as you're standing to your feet. First of all, I want to thank God that he's in the house. I got things in my tent I got to clean out. And if I do as your pastor, I know you do. We all have certain things in our lives that God doesn't want there that are holding us back. So I want to just bow our hearts in prayer and thank you, Lord God, that you love us. Even if we've got the dirtiest, nastiest, filthiest stuff hidden in our tents, you still love us. You loved us in the beginning. You loved us first. And you called us away from all of that. And I thank you, Lord God, that you're in this house today to help us clean out our tents and to clean up our lives. The point I'm going to bring out while you're in attitude of prayer is when the Israelites went into Ai with their own battle plan, guess what happened? Ai chased them out. They went running away from their battle. Some of you have been running away from your enemy, your habit, your hang-up, your addiction, your depression, your whatever, when you should be running to and against your enemy in God's strength. And I think it's amazing how God in His grace gives His people a second chance to defeat the enemy that just defeated them. Once they repented, took care of their sin, followed God's plan, God gave them victory over their enemy. Maybe you're here today, and you are discouraged. You're just sick and tired of losing the same old fight day after day, week after week. 
I believe with all of my heart, God is here to give you a second chance, just like he did the Israelites, to make us stand against the sin in your life. He's giving you the chance to follow the battle plan, his battle plan today, because he loves you. And he wants you to be victorious in every area of your life that keeps beating you down. Remember, the battle's not ours, it's the Lord. So I don't know who you are or what you've got going on in your life, but with every head bowed, I'm going to ask you just to slip up your hand. If you've got some things that you're battling against right now, just recognize it. You're not recognizing it before me. I'm not even going to open my eyes. I'll keep them closed. Recognize it before God. And by holding up your hand, and by the way, I've got my hand up, you're recognizing, God, I'm tired of losing the same battles I've been fighting. God, I'm turning to you right now, and I need you. I need your strength. I need your power. I need you to set me free from this addiction. I need you to set me free from this bad habit. I need you to set me free from going back like the dog returning to his vomit and falling into the same trap over and over and over again. I'm tired, God, of losing the battle, but I see that I'm losing because I haven't let you lead the way. I haven't let you be the God of all flesh that nothing is too hard for. I haven't let you do what only you can do. So this morning, with all of my heart, pray to God and say, God, I surrender. God sees those hands. and I haven't opened my eyes yet. I don't want to see whoever it is. I don't care to see that. All I care is that God sees it. God wants to see those hands raised, hearts that are surrendered to Him to say, I know this battle is bigger than I am and I can't win without you, God. I need you. Would you pray this with me? Please forgive me, Lord, for the battles I fought on my own, for trying to do my own thing and leaving you out. I need your strength. I need your power. I need your presence in my life right now to defeat my enemies and to be all that you want me to be. In Jesus' name. I believe if you prayed that prayer right now, God is fighting your battles. Like he said to uh, the Israelites, I've been here, but I'll jump back in the fight when you get rid of the wrong things in your life. And by confessing, you get rid of the wrong things. God's can step out and be the God he wants. So if you're aching, I believe God has challenged you this morning to get rid of the things that are in your tent. I believe if you're Joshua and the Israelites, somebody's wronged you, I believe he's giving you the grace to forgive. The grace to reconcile differences, maybe to move on. But God has a plan for your life. God has a place for your life. God has victory for your life. And it only comes by depending upon Him, following His battle plan. We give you praise, glory, and honor for change, transforms lives, forgiven lives today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Can you give Him a hand clap of praise? He is a good God. He's a mighty God. Hallelujah to the name of Jesus. Go out and have a wonderful week from Jesus Christ. God bless you all.